Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. As you're no doubt aware, uh, the Stay at Home Festival is something we are doing every day, uh, twice a day at the moment, uh, to keep everyone entertained during this lockdown and to raise some money for artists and venues that are really struggling right now. And one of the shows that we did on the Stay at Home Festival podcast recently was a live edition of Book Shambles. Uh, Fortunately, Josie had some childcare Uh, issues the evening we recorded so she couldn't join us and unfortunately this episode didn't come out on uh, Thursday uh, as normal because I had some stuff uh, that I needed to deal with which is why we didn't have a live show uh, on Thursday as well and so here it is today this uh, live edition of Book Shambles Robin chats to uh, Dr. Katie Mack who you probably best know as Astro Katie on Twitter about her new book that was meant to be out uh, now, basically, but has obviously been pushed back to a bit later in the year. Her book about the end of the universe. And we had on uh, one of our favourite guests on Book Shambles. He's been on plenty of times before, Poet Lem Cisse. And we're also joined by Laura Kidd, who has a book out at the moment, a book of her lyrics from uh, performing from when she was performing under the name She Makes War and she also had a song for us as well. So that is this episode. You can go to cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home to drop a tip in the tip jar for artists and venues who are struggling right now. You can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to support us. Uh, We were meant to do a Patreon only live stream uh, this past Wednesday night uh, that unfortunately we had to cancel as I've just mentioned. Uh, so we'll be doing that hopefully this week, maybe the week after. We've just got to get the time finalised and we will let you all know. That will be myself and Robin and Josie and uh, a special guest from the Shambles family as well. In the meantime, hope you enjoy this episode of Book Shambles. Hello, welcome to Shambles Stay at Home Festival. This is an extra one. Some of you might have been watching this morning when we had uh, Reese Shearsmith on, and uh, oh man, it was and uh, Rosie Plain was on, and Nikesh Shukla as well. Uh, that was fantastic, and it was uh, one amazing thing to see that uh, there is a, actually Reese seems to have the death mask of Bella Lugosi, not Bella Lugosi's head. It is just a mould of his head, but nevertheless, what a fascinating thing amongst many of the show and tells that we've had um, uh, today on this extra one. Uh, we have uh, the person who wrote this fantastic book, Katie Matt. This is not the final copy this is the proof copy uh this is about the end of the universe uh we have person who put made this fantastic book as well which is their collected lyrics when they used to go out as she makes war and we have the person who wrote one of my favorite books of 2019 it's lucky because this came out in 2020 so there's no kind of competition or rivalry uh my name is why by let so which is just uh, i'm sure many of you've read it already and you might have heard us when we did a book shambles on it as well it is a, a incredibly beautiful uh read uh just before i introduce katie first of all uh, just for those of you who haven't watched before um, we also have a, a tip jar at the bottom we're trying to collect money for a lot of the people who basically have no work uh, anymore uh, in particular in our, our kind of world a lot of the performers, a lot of the artists uh, and a lot of the art centres as well there is nothing going on uh, even if this ends in the next few weeks kind of things are, are going to be stopped for, for quite a few months for a lot of those people so we're trying to make sure that we've got some money to keep those people going, to keep them creating things and to make sure that the local art centres which are very often also a place where a lot of people go during the 
day as well uh, that they are able to keep going as well and keep employing people so that's what we're going to do if you give us any money you don't have to give us any money and you might be in a situation where frankly you don't feel that you can at the moment but enjoy the show whatever and now to start off by enjoying the show by talking about the end of the universe yeah, it's uh, it's a lovely your your book, uh, the end of everything is the end of everything is uh, it's fascinating because as you say right at the beginning, it's not about the end of the earth. The earth is pretty much forgotten, quite near the beginning. It is yep. about the possible destinies and the fact that you know this is a bit as as a cosmologist. In fact, first of all, tell us a little bit for for people who don't necessarily know what a cosmologist is. This is quite a, a, a new term, really. It's, it's mm. only it. You know, the 20th century is where cosmology begins. Yeah, I mean, so before it became a scientific discipline, cosmology would be how you would talk about how your religion uh, envisions the universe. Um, you know, it's sort of tied up in theology. Uh, but as a scientific discipline, it's the study of the whole cosmos from beginning to end, the evolution of the cosmos, really how the universe works on the largest scales and also how it works fundamentally in terms of the physics of everything in the universe. So it's it's a it's a very large all-encompassing term, but it's to do with really how everything is evolving and changing, where it came from, where it's going, all of those kind of big questions. And it does seem I mean it's interesting a, a point you make in in the introduction, which is introduction, for, which is for some religions for instance, the idea of a steady state universe is a it would have been a terrible idea because mm. for redemption and for their narrative to work the yeah. universe has to end. Yeah, religion, yeah. It's, it's often sort of talked about as the end of the world, um, it de depending on, on your sort of faith tradition. But yeah, there's an idea that the way that it ends tells you something about what it all meant or how we should be acting as people. So there's this idea that if, you know, maybe things are terrible right now, but then we'll all get our beautiful paradise in the end when the world ends and everything is kind of tied up in a bow and, and redeemed and, you know, uh, it's it's given some purpose after the fact. And so that's that's a very common thread in a lot of uh, faith traditions that, that there will be an end, but it'll be somehow redemptive. Or even if there's a cycle, maybe things get a little bit better every cycle or, or you know, they uh, they kind of you know, give you some kind of context to what happened in the previous one. Which I was I was interviewing a, an astronomer the other day, and he was talking about Fred Hoyle. And uh, of course, Fre Fred Hoyle was uh, he 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 believed in the idea of a steady state. state in the idea of a steady state theory, he mm -hmm. did, rather than the, the, the primordial atom and then an expanse expansion that goes on. And it was interesting. I don't know if you have an opinion on this, but the astronomer was saying that they really believe that Fred Hoyle's belief in the steady state theory ultimately did not come from his scientific kind of uh, mm. understanding, that it really was that he wanted it to be a state. And, and he was, of course, a great scientist as well. It's a sad thing to that he's only ever talked about as someone who kind of refuted sure. that idea. But the, the, that but that's an interesting part of science where he kind of the steady state theory spoke to him as a human perhaps more than as a scientist. Yeah, and I, I think that I think that's very that's very plausible. I think that as scientists we all bring our own biases into the way that we approach our work. And it's very hard to separate yourself from the science if you have a really strong feeling about it. And even in the course of writing this book, I talked to a lot of astronomers and physicists about how they think about the end of the universe, um, what they think is going to happen, how they think we're going to figure it out. And it was striking that it, it, there were a few occasions when, you know, I really got the impression 
maybe this person prefers this kind of ending because it fits how they think about the world and they're going to study a particular scenario because it's more satisfying if that's the way things are going. Um, And not to say that anybody's being dishonest in their work. I think everybody is really, you know, trying to find the answers, but what you focus on and the kinds of theories you find appealing really do connect with how you think about the world, how you think about just what the universe should be. I don't think that's, I don't think, I don't think it's possible to completely get away from that just as people. At at what point in in the the last few decades was steady steady state, did we see really the end of that? Did we see the big bang becoming for the time being, you know, I I hate saying irrefutable because I realize that science is always waiting to be refuted, but, Mm. but that, that point where it becomes the predominant narrative, the narrative where it is, you know, the, 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 the belief for the time being. The expansion well, of the universe know, the- uh, was something that was uh, kind of first started to be understood in the early part of the 1900s. And then um, we got more and more evidence the universe was expanding. And by sometime in the 60s, we started to get evidence of the Big Bang, of, of the idea that the universe was hot and dense in the beginning and has been expanding and cooling ever since. And so at that point, it's it's very hard to think of the universe as being steady, although you know, there there are ideas that have floated around about, you know, maybe it's expanding, but uh, also sort of new things are showing up to fill in the empty spaces. Uh, that idea can persist a while, even in an expanding universe. But I think once you, once you see evidence of the Big Bang, once you see that there is radiation and afterglow of the Big Bang still in the cosmos that we can detect and we can actually see this light from the initial sort of fireball state of the universe, it's very hard to think that there's anything steady about the evolution of the cosmos. So I, I don't know if this is true or not. I, I don't know if this is true or not, because as you know, I'm not a scientist, but for instance, Olber's paradox, the, the, the mm. idea of, you know, why, why is the, 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 why is the darkness? Why is the night? Why is not the, the universe? Um, it, is the big bang, is that one of the things that allows that, or, or was there space within yeah. the steady state theory to also allow for starlight um, without the uh, constant, I mean, the, there's always a way to massage a theory to try and uh, try and account for that. You can come up with ways that you know things will dim in in, in complicated ways to try to understand that. But but Olber's paradox, um, the idea that the, you know the fact that the sky is dark, um, really is very straightforwardly solved if the universe is expanding, is not infinitely old. And, uh, you know, there are, you can sort of, the farther away you look, the farther in in the past you're seeing, and you're seeing a time before the, before the stars and galaxies were forming. And that's, that kind of is why you can get uh, these, these dark, the the dark night sky. Um, So it's, it's very much more straightforward to explain if the universe is not infinitely old and not, or not infinitely large or, you know, and expanding and all of this. Your your book is filled with really brilliant filled with really brilliant moments where you just have to stop and stare out of the window for quite a while, and the way that you tee them up so you give us enough of a warning to realise that it's going to be a <laughs> what I might call it is it's a kind of joyous nausea of confusion. It's not mm. of terror. Now, one of the ideas, and I, I I know this is quite a tough one to throw at you, but one of the chapters you talk about the fact that when we look out of the universe, of course, things the further away they are look smaller and smaller and smaller mm-hmm. until there mm-hmm. is a point where we start to see that galaxies that are further away actually look bigger than they should, considering that. Yeah. Now, that 
is just <laughs> that's beautiful and wonderful and strange. Can you yeah. explain some of this phenomenon? So the the basic idea it's it's tied a lot to the idea that when we look at distant things, we're looking farther in the past. And so, you know, when you look at a very distant galaxy, you're looking at it as it was, you know, billions and billions of years ago. And if the universe is expanding, and if our whole observable universe was at some point contained in a very small space, then when you look at something really, really distant, that's really, really old, um, you're seeing it as it was when it was closer to us, because the universe hadn't expanded enough to take it as far away as it currently is. And so basically you can imagine it as, you know, there's some galaxy and it sent sort of a picture of itself toward us, you know, maybe five, 10 billion years ago. And that picture travel is has traveled to us from a closer, uh, distance and so it looks larger on the sky but that galaxy now is so far away that if we could see it in a sort of steady state kind of way it would be you know much much less than any pixel we can imagine on a telescope so it's this combination of the time that it takes for light to get to us uh, the the expansion of the universe and the fact that some of these galaxies sort of the light started traveling to us when the universe was much much smaller than it is now so so, I mean, that's what some of those images as well, which are like, for instance, when we see, you know, the 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 cosmic microwave background radiation, that incredible image mm. where tiny, minuscule fluctuations in 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 heat are a minuscule fluctuation that will turn into an entire galaxy. Mm-hmm. Now, what I always find when I look at that, and obviously Brian Cox loves showing that in you know all the different shows that I've done mm-hmm. with him. Every time I see it on a big screen, I'm still trying to work out how what is the process of being able to take that image because i think the first reaction everyone has is how are you able to take that image from earth when we are surely in that image so you know those kind of things i I think people battle with trying to comprehend when Mm. they when when i suppose what we see is just kind of galileo looking out of a really big telescope with lenses building up that picture and so that that can again be kind of quite counterintuitive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the interesting thing about this speed of light delay thing is that you, when you look at something that's really distant, you're looking at it as it was in the distant past. But that there's kind of a strict relationship. So when you look at something nearby, you can only see it as it is recently. And then if you look at something far away, you see it as it was in the past. So if we want to see the distant past, we have to look at things that are really, really far away from us. So we can't see ourselves as we were in the past, but we can take advantage of the fact that the universe is basically the same everywhere and see you know, the, 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 this early state of the universe, this sort of primordial fireball state where you get these little fluctuations in the, that early uh, sort of uh, fiery cosmos. And you can you can just uh, extrapolate that you know even though we're looking at billions and billions of light years away, that's also what it looked like here at that time in the cosmos. And so we can learn something about where we came from just by looking at that that really distant region and what it's doing from our perspective right now, but actually was 13.8 billion years ago. Do you remember your reaction the first time that you discovered that? discovered that it it's believed the the universe will eventually come to an end because it's a it's a strange thing isn't yeah. it which is we, we if you tell someone that what they're doing may well mean they're going to die in 20 years time they go ah whatever mm-hmm. if you say it's going to be a week's time they go ah if you say yeah. the universe is going to come to an end in however many trillions of years that again seems to have an enormous existential effect yeah yeah and I, I certainly remember the moment when i first realized that 
the there there are these immensely powerful forces in the cosmos that could end us any moment if they really wanted to you know like the that we are at the mercy of you know sort of these physics tides throughout the cosmos where the cosmos is changing and evolving all the time and we're just this little sort of fleck you know floating on these waves um when i think about the end of the universe and I, you know i spent the last couple of years writing this book and, and thinking all the time about the end of the universe you know, I go through these phases where sometimes it's like, oh, this is just this abstract, uh, fun thing to think about. And sometimes it's like, I don't want the universe to end, you know, <laughs> I like it here. And there is something very, very confronting about the idea that that at some point in the distant future, everything right now will just not have mattered in some sense. If you think about, you know, whether or not something matters as if it has a lasting effect, that that lasting effect will end at some point. And so you have to try and understand, you know, for yourself, how you conceptualize meaning and purpose in a universe that will forget us un unquestionably. And that's, that's a, that's a hard thing to, to come to terms with. And I, I still don't know if I've fully, you know, gathered in my mind uh, how I feel about that, even though, you know, I mean, this is so many billions of years away, most likely that it doesn't even, we don't even know how to talk about it, but it's still, it feels important. You know, it feels somehow meaningful and important that, that it won't go on forever. One of the things that I found interesting, one you, of the things you, you I found interesting, you, you, you touch on in the book and, and a few other cosmologists I've spoken to, which is the fact that the universe is going to be so boring for such a long period of its life that you know at the moment yeah. we see matter in all manner of of what to us at least is exotic shapes and, and incredible mm. structures you know whether it is the rings of saturn whether it is a supernova whether it is a supermassive black hole but mm -hmm. then it kind of we have this point where you go and then it just kind of thins out and stuff yep. just starts falling apart and it just becomes <laughs> yep. part, you know and, and that to know that the life of the universe much of it is you know is that it that yeah. seems to be quite disturbing. It is, yeah. I mean, you know, I've definitely, when I talk to other cosmologists about this in the course of writing the book, a few people said, like, yeah, it's just really sad. Uh, you know, one of my one of my colleagues said that uh, when she gives lectures about this, people have cried. Uh, just this idea that everything's going to decay and it's gonna, we're going to the universe is going to end most likely in this sort of dark, uh, empty space, right? Um, I, the way I try and think about it is that we're, we're very lucky to have what we have right now and to see this amazing variety. And, and you know, obviously, if you can't live in a dark, empty universe anyway, so it's not that surprising that we live in a time when there's this amazing variety. But, but you know, we should appreciate it because it's not going to be here forever. There is it is going to disappear eventually and it is going to get a lot less exciting in this cosmos um, over time. As you journey through various different through various different conjectures and ideas of how the universe might end, was the one that you went because I'm certainly the way that you write about the big rip. That's mm -hmm. a wonderfully kind of disturbing thing. Was uh -huh. the one that the further you got into it, you went, I really, I know I'm not going to be here when that happened, <laughs> but I really hope this isn't the conclusion to it all. 
Uh, I think the one that I found most the one that's also least likely, uh, which is the Big Crunch. Um, so this is the the kind of oldest idea where you know the current universe is currently expanding, and maybe someday the expansion will reverse and everything will come crashing back together. Uh, this is very unlikely to happen based on what we understand about the cosmos today. But that would be terrifying because you would see it coming. Like you would know that um, things are getting closer and closer, and you would know that as the universe compresses, it's not only bringing stars and galaxies closer together, it's bringing all of the radiation from all of the stars that have ever shown together. And it's the, the sort of ambient radiation of the universe would get brighter and brighter and hotter and hotter. And everything would be kind of cooked in this very uncomfortable seeming way. <laughs> so that, that to me was the one that I thought like, uh, this is, I don't want to think too hard about that. Luckily it's, it's not very likely. The, one thing I again I've, I've one thing I again I've, I've thrown one kind of incredible idea and another one which I, I've been reading about recently and, and the moment I knew it was in your book it excited me again, which is when we were talking about this point if the if the universe has the length of life that it might and so much of that life where matter does not have you know as, as many exotic uh, and and intricate structures, Boltzmann's brain the Boltzmann brain yeah. now this. You write about that, and this is straight out of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This is filled <laughs> yes. with Douglas Adams' Im imagery. What yeah. is Boltzmann brain? What does this mean? So the Boltzmann yeah, the, brain idea. If you have any kind of physical system at all, like a, a box full of particles or an empty room or, or whatever, if there's, there's something in that space, then by random chance, some of those particles are going to come together and meet in some interesting way at some point. You know, there's some chance that if you have a box of, of molecules, at some point as they're floating around, they're all gonna gather in one little corner for a moment, you know? And and so you can, you can calculate that if you have a universe that you leave alone long enough, all sorts of things will just pop into existence by random chance. Um, I, I read a paper where there was a calculation of exactly how long it would take for a grand piano to arise out of the cosmic dust. You know, just, just it, it's a really long time. But if you wait long enough, anything will kind of organize itself. And so if you have a universe that is persisting as, in a sort of empty space kind of way after, you know, all of the, everything else has decayed, but you have a really long time and you have a little bit of stuff in that universe, then just by random chance, statistical mechanics, um, eventually there will be a, 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 a moment when something organizes itself and that something could be an entire galaxy or it could be the whole universe, a whole new version of the universe. But the, but when you think about it, the less, intricate that thing is, or the smaller that thing is, the more likely it's going to happen. So more likely than a whole galaxy would be a single planet, and more likely than a single planet would be just one person, and more likely than that it would be a single brain that thinks it has a memory of all of existence but actually doesn't, and just quantum fluctuated out of the nothingness and imagines the whole history of the cosmos. And that's called the Boltzmann brain problem. And, th and that's a problem of, you know, if you're going to use these kinds of random fluctuations to, uh, as a, an origin story for the universe, you have to contend with the fact that it's much, much more likely that the universe never exists. It's just, we kind of, these structures show up that think the universe exists and that's sufficient. I love that. I love that. I love that bit where you go, you know, the, the chance that suddenly just just at some point that Tuesday comes back into existence. The whole of a Tuesday comes into existence and then yeah. it goes off. And for that well, moment, yeah. 
Uh, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's another a related idea, which is this uh, it's, uh, Poincaré recurrences, where if it's also if it's possible for a brain or a whole galaxy to pop into existence, it's also possible that any moment in time, any configuration of the universe that ever existed, that will also come into existence again over and over again. So like this moment right now will be recreated randomly sometime deep into the heat death of the universe and so will you know next week and so will you know this same moment but where i'm wearing a different color shirt all of that and and that and that you know is is brings up this this whole sort of nietzsche thought experiment about where you know this eternal recurrence where you know what what if every moment of your life you had to live over and over again and this is a, a an idea people talk about in cosmology as as physicists it's it's wild i love it i love it i, I just think it's it's great we've had a question on the live chat as well uh this question starts off with this question might be nonsense which of course is a lovely thing because when again touring with brian or, or some of the other science shows that i've done people are always thinking this may well be not but all of the questions that start off sounding in someone's minds if they might be nonsense i've never seen them not going to some interesting place so this person would like to know uh all the multiverses, do they also end if this universe ends because they are all mutually or are they all mutually exclusive? Can they exist without the others? Right, right. So there are different ways to think about a multiverse. And one of the most common ones in cosmology is this idea that there are just different regions of the universe that are so far apart from each other that they're kind of they're undergoing their own evolution from their own Big Bang to their own whatever. And in that idea, some of these might kind of appear at different times in in the the cosmos in the past, the way we think of it. And so it's very possible that, you know, even if our universe ends in whatever horrific way, some other part of this much larger space, some other sort of self-contained universe carries on. And, and you can have, you know, uh, these eternally popping up bubbles of universe that that keep keep going into the indefinite future and you i mean there are other ways of thinking about multiverses as well where um you can have other kinds of space that that have totally different evolutions um and you can even think about this sort of many worlds idea that where you have you know different sort of quantum events happen different ways in different you know separate universes and and those can have different histories and, and futures as well so yeah it's totally possible that that some part of some larger universe can persist indefinitely as far as we can tell but but our sort of observable universe our cosmos we're, we're pretty sure will end at, end at some point that's uh thank you so much this is uh, i'll show the cover which is of no use because this is not the cover people see in the shop so can you show you the okay. cover which is this is the cover i think people are going to see when it comes out in, yeah. in a couple of months time or obviously it might change because of what's going on now but but well but, yeah so this is this is the I don't know. Yeah. Uh, this is the U.S. version. I had a minute ago uh, on my computer the U.K. version. Oh, here it is. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how well you can see this, but this is the you U.K. You need to put version. it right in front of your face because you have blur on. If you put it okay, on your sorry. face, it will. Oh, we still can't. No. No. Please hide your face. Hide your face. It has to become a okay. mask. And then. No. It refuses ah. to acknowledge the, uh, the, UK, uh, the cover. UK cover. How weird! How weird! Okay, well, it's 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 black and it's very it's very bleak looking. So, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's not a bleak book. 
I have to admit, no, I, I don't think it I is. I think it is. I think it's a beautiful book about how much the, the potential of understanding and the level that physics has got. It is is a really in, incredible journey, and hopefully, depending on what happens, you you are going to be a guest on the Infinite Monkey Cage next series. Hopefully, but we might end up yes. having to do it like this rather than with an audience because I, I we don't know what's going to yeah. happen. But, but you are meant to be on Infinite Monkey Cage, I think, uh, in June. So uh, thank you very much, and do stay with us if if you if you'd like yeah, to. Thank you. Um, and uh, also quickly say that um, every Sunday we also this Sunday in particular we have a jam-packed science day at 11 o'clock as far as i remember 11 a.m uh check on the cosmic shambles site uh, we have uh, a kind of a special kids science show uh people doing experiments all manner of different stuff there uh at three in the afternoon uh we're going to do a q a if you have uh, any particular oh sorry i've got the day wrong time right day wrong uh it's uh, saturday at 11 a.m we've got a kids science show uh on sunday at uh, 3 p.m we've got uh, chris jackson who's a brilliant geologist and, and look up his stuff because there's ask questions we're doing a q a chris jackson uh helen chersky and someone else who I've I have forgotten. I apologise, but that will probably pop up on my screen in a minute. But we're having a science Q and A. So, oh, Jim Alcleely actually has just agreed to join us, which is great. Jim Alcleely. So, any questions you have about physics, about science communication, whatever, we'll answer them. And then at seven pm that evening as well. Uh, my apologies, due to Janet Street Porter and Vanessa Feltz not being available, uh, we are doing a Q and A uh, about the pandemic without them. Instead, we're just having people who work in the world of uh, microbiology uh, and study uh, viruses bacteria and uh, statistical mathematics so i'm sorry that we didn't have uh, janet and vanessa are unavailable we're having to go to scientists instead but we've got we've had some really brilliant questions for that and i hope we will have some some answers because i know people are still very very confused about what's going on with this pandemic what is the best thing to do how they should be dealing with it we'll be talking about that and we'll be talking about its kind of it, it, its history and its evolution and our current understanding uh, of it so uh, that's all on sunday um now the uh, the author of this book, She Makes War, collected lyrics. Uh, she Makes War, uh, sadly, there we go. As we can see, She Makes War died in 2019 as a concept. The person who created it, though, is still alive. Uh, and that is Laura uh, Kidd, who Laura this Kidd, year who... will be unveiling a new a new project which she's keeping all secret we're waiting we're waiting we're waiting but uh she's going to sing us a song now is this going to be a song laura which is uh she makes war song or is this one of your new songs there are no more she makes war this is me song now okay and i've been uh it's i, I can't I, i'd like to to offer an internet round of applause for robin ince and trent for doing all these amazing shows because I, I don't know how people find the energy to do anything at the moment. I'm trying, and I have been writing songs as well, and I'm recording an album. But I just look at what you're doing, and I'm just blown away, as always. So, well done, Robin. Thank Very you. Very good. Robin knows this song, because I played it on tour last year. This is called Sea Shaken. And you might not believe it, but it's not about this moment. But um, unfortunately, it does apply. So it's a catch-all sort of end-of-the-world song for you. <laughs>
Thank you. And, Thank you. Uh, and uh, as we mentioned the other day when Laura was on counter instinctually, uh, even though she's killed off uh, She Makes War, if you want to find out more about the work that she's doing at the moment, it is still at the She Makes War uh, website. But you can also find uh, her work on uh, Bandcamp and lots of other places as well. But uh, keep up to date with and, and join her mailing list as well, because you will then find out when uh, the, the, the grand evolution and transformation into your new personality. That's uh, so yeah, first of May, find out about Laura's work. Thank you very much for joining us again. Um, uh, our next guest is someone who wrote this book, uh, and I've mentioned it numerous times. As I said, it, it was one of my top books of last year, and and uh, I would say of that decade as well. And uh, it's great to so have you here. It's great to um, have you here. Um, my first question for you is because I know that you were listening to Katie as an artist, as someone who creates, as someone mm. whose poems are daubed on walls in mm. Manchester, officially, I might add, not you just going around in a van mm. late at night. You know, as far as I remember, you used to be on the side of Hardy's Wells pub as well, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah how do you feel about the, well, the universe is going to come to an end, you know, the, all of these things. Look on my works, you mighty. Well, of uh, astrophysicists uh, in a lecture weeping because they've grasped the concept of the end of the universe and that they're having an existential experience. Um, that is, that's kind of mind blowing to go so deeply into a subject matter, to feel emotional 
about what it has revealed to you that much that you um, sense that the end could and will really happen and you've just kind of unlocked the um the uh, what's that thing on a safe the uh the that you've unlocked the the fact the fact that it will happen and that that has then an emotional fa- you know effect on you that's the stuff there's there's you know there's poems to be written there and it made me think of um joyce bell burnell who uh, is an astrophysicist and who is a lover of poetry herself mm-hmm. and actually wrote a book uh, sorry, put, it, put together an anthology of poetry, um, whose father uh, built an observatory in Armagh, where I did a gig under the stars, you know, under the, in, in the dome while the projections were on the, on the wall. It was the most beautiful thing. Um, and I think, not knowing this myself, but reading quite a lot of books as I am uh, for the Booker Prize presently, <laughs> Um, there is one book where the central characters relate to the stars as they were related to by the Greeks mm. and constantly um, constantly references various gods who had, who had relationships with various parts of the cosmos uh, to interpret a, uh, a, a, a contemporary um, issue or problem. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting thing when you talk about that. And, and Justin Belbonel was a fantastic, but I mean, really interesting, mm-hmm. discovered pulsars and and uh, her, go on YouTube. Everyone is watching this. There's loads of different talks. She's done uh, a lot about kind of, you know, women in science. And she's been campaigning on that for it, she's she's a really interesting human being. Um, but it's interesting that poetry thing, because Richard Feynman used to talk about, you know, sometimes he would be a little bit dismissive of the arts. And he would say, you know, what men are poets that they can talk of Jupiter as if he were an angry god but they can't talk of it as a magnificent enormous gas giant right and i think that's changed now for poetry i think now we see more i don't know how you feel but within the poet's imagination maybe it hasn't changed maybe it was always there somewhere but that way of confronting the reality that science offers but at the same time you know using that information to create the majesty as well well maybe we're going back maybe we're going back to um Back to the time when, didn't the word scientist come from the word artist originally, wasn't it? Isn't that correct? Isn't I'm not this, sure. Yeah, yeah, the word scientist came from, half of it came from, you're going to have to Google this, folks. <laughs> but, and please do. Um, at the end of, uh, this is documented in the Royal Society, down there by the uh, ICA, um, uh, that, that a word was looked to describe what, is it philosophy? What was it called? Natural it was, philosophy. Natural philosophy. So those, those, and the natural those papers were written by uh, natural philosophers, who were then who then looked for a word to describe uh, what they did, and found that artists had a higher standing in uh, society and used used part of the word artist to describe themselves sorry i don't have the actual fact but it is no it's a, it's a, we live in a world where it's now official you've said it's this is history well i don't want to say no no on this program no, no, on this program of all programs i would never want to say something that was factually incorrect or, or ever but 
but uh, stars have been used by writers uh, as um, descriptions for how one feels, it seems, for a long time. There's a cracking poem called Halley's Comet, written, uh, it's, it's Joyce Burnell's favourite poem, and it's written by a guy called, and I have it here, I am looking, uh, Stanley, I would love to, I uh, can't see his name, I was looking for it, but... But yeah, no, poems, uh, uh, the stars are a great everlasting gift to the poet, I think, to describe most of all how he, she, they might feel. So I've always found that there is, you know, we've we've often... Well, it's, I, I think there was, I remember a, a while ago I was doing a show about art and I was talking about there was a painting of Turner's that, you, you know, when you have that moment. Uh, it, is that right? I've just seen that transport that. Um, yes. The, um, but it's and, and as I it, it's it's in the uh, the Walker Gallery in Liverpool. Lovely gallery. And uh, and it was that moment, you know, when you suddenly with certain painters, there's a moment where you go, oh, I get it now. Now, you know, Turner's were everywhere. And then I looked at this one and it was, you know, this beautiful, hazy kind of dusk. And I started thinking about the fact that the story of that painting begins with hydrogen turning to helium, incredible pressures in the sun, the photons of light, you know, the the, the light then then hitting the surface of the earth somewhere, you know, down in Sussex. And it bounces off and it goes to the back of Turner's eyes and then the rods and the cones read it. And then his imagination kicks in. And I think actually in all of those stories, what we see a lot is when the the two cultures idea this division between science and artists there isn't really because both of them there, there are different ways of using imagination yeah. but scientists and artists what we're both trying to do as much as possible is think as as many different you know the variables our variables don't have to be testable ultimately <laughs> their variables do but they are about exercising as many different kind of potentials as possible and different ideas i think Absolutely. This makes this makes at times in society this makes artists dangerous. That that idea of testing as many variables as possible, and exactly the same thing with scientists: a threat to religion, or a threat a threat to an idea, or a threat to the status quo. Uh, but it also is, um, yeah, and I do believe that both, uh, whatever creativity is, it can be used in so many ways to describe so many things and, and, and come to mean nothing. But whatever it is, yeah, I, it is in scientists. Uh, and as it is in artists, I, I believe um, creativity is not the monopoly of artists. Uh, it's one thing I've learned. The more that I've learned about um, what it is that I'm, I dabble in. I, I it, Katie remembers that there's a, there's a quote by Albert Einstein, which is actually on the uh, the wall of the uh, the uh, the library in in Huddersfield. Mm-hmm. And it is I'm going to get this slightly wrong as well, but it is I think he says uh, with evidence you can go from A to B, with imagination you can go wherever you want. And, you know, and, and certainly Einstein and many of those, they, they, the talking of the fact that, you know, you need to, yes, the evidence is very important. We need to count those things and measure those things. But that alone only leads to the statistics. It doesn't lead to then, you know, like in Katie's book, all of these different imaginings using the evidence of the potential of the end of the universe or the potential of living things or whatever it might be. What did Brian Cox said? Brian Cox said, he said, Inspira- oh no, it's, it's not connected, but it kind of is. He said inspiration is not, inspiration is economically quantifiable. And I think what he was, yes, I think what he, I think, I think part of the reason he, yeah, sorry, that's just totally, total red herring. It doesn't matter though, it's, fine. it's a good quote. I'm happy to have um, it. Yeah, this is, yeah. uh, but how are you finding, because you're re- reading your book, that, that moment that you discovered 
performance. You know, you actually talk about a time, I think it was at a pantomime, yes. uh, where Lenny Henry got you up on yeah. stage yeah. and you had a sensation as as, <laughs> yeah. as that happened. Yes. yes. And what point did you find that one of your ways of coping with the world was to be able to turn it into shapes and patterns of words? Well, I uh, oh, I I, um, I wonder. I wonder. I mean, if I had a choice, I wouldn't talk about the things that I talk about in my book or in the poetry. So I think that what happened is, uh, well, with the stage, it was that I felt at home. I felt very, felt very. I, I did a gig with Sandy Toxbig the other day. And I walked, I was backstage and I watched her walk on stage and I just got the sense she was absolutely at home. Like the audience had been invited to her house. She knew what she was about. She had arrived. You know, backstage she was who she is, which is a beautiful human being. But it, I just found that she, she walked on stage and there was a fire and it was warm and she was having a cup of tea and she was at home. Um, I felt the same uh, when I walked on stage and uh, and I had a, a feeling of electricity uh, when I wrote a, a poem, a simple poem. And um, that really has got nothing to do with the audience. That's not really about whether or not they like me or not. Although it's nice to look out of the window of that house and see them there and think, oh, that's, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful view right now. Like when, when Laura did a gig um, she did like fifteen in front of fifteen thousand people. You know, the, the sense that this is a beautiful place to be, and I'm glad you're here. But I'm not here. Mm. I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this because this gives me something which is I can't. I don't understand, and I think it goes to the beginning of time for the performer that they sense the sense of oh, this is where I'm meant to be. This is how I'm. This is how I'm meant to draw out whatever it is that's in me that I I have to draw out, you know. And um, and and I think for that reason I've gone through times in my career where I've absolutely I mean it's thirty years now since I've you know walked on stage I've absolutely hated the the audience. I think there was a time there's a good ten years I think in the middle of my my um, career. And by the way, I, I'm in poetry, so I don't expect there to be, you know, you know, if you wanted to be famous, you know, you'd be a bit stupid to be a poet. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) This is my way. You know, know, um, but it's what I feel when I write um, uh, and when I walk on stage and it's, it's what happens there is it's something that I cannot explain, cannot replicate anywhere else. And, um, you know, the, I feel I feel like when I walk on stage with my poems, they're like my children, and like anybody who has children knows, you can't control who they are. They are who they are, and so I watch my children go out to the audience, and the audience could be critical, or they could be like, "Oh, that's lovely," and I'm like, "Please, they're my children. I don't, you know, just I know where they go wrong. I know what their problems are. Believe me, I do, and I talk to them about it." But I, I swear, you know, it, it hasn't got much to do, do is, it hasn't got as much to do with you as it has to me. We had John Hegley on yesterday and uh, I, I've, I've always loved John's work. And John has a, a, a different kind of journey to, to yours in terms of how, you know, he started off on the comedy circuit. 
and then he told told this wonderful story many years ago. He wrote about the moment when he realised he was a poet as well. He wasn't just a comedy turn. Yes. He was doing an event at the South Bank. I, I can't remember which theatre it was down at the South Bank in London. Mm-hmm. And he was on with proper poets. He wasn't on with other comics, not to be little, but, you know, mm-hmm. he, he was there with, with, with the, these poets that he'd read and who'd inspired him. And then he stood on stage and the audience accepted him not as a, as a comic turn, yes. but as a poet. And he said, you know, he stayed around after for a little bit but then he knew he just wanted to go and sit on his own in his local pub and just have a drink and just think you know what john you were a poet tonight and i wondered about those moments where you might have had that you know in in those early days when you are testing the water and sometimes you know the the rejection that can happen from an audience you know throughout your career but you know certainly early on finding the way of translating what is in your head to an audience can be quite difficult to find the right the right means I mean, the be- I mean, I used to do a, I did a lot of performing with the likes of Steve Coogan and John Thompson and Carolina Heard in the early early years. They're all sort of British comedians of note, and um, they, you know, I'm sure I didn't leave a nice uh, stage for them at the end because I would kill the audience with a really serious poem <laughs> about about race or about X Y Z, and that was all before. And I remember when the when the split happened, it was all before comedy sort of separated from poetry. Avalon came in and the, the big agencies, and there was a change. You know, those folk, folky-like gigs, there weren't folky gigs, actually. Even alternative comedy gigs included poets and included uh, guitar, um, uh, musicians and included, and there was a sense of solidarity. But I would often leave any comedian who came after me spitting feathers. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was actually, as a, as a young poet, I think I was quite self-centred and quite, um, quite. Uh, I will do this my way. And um, I think I, yeah, and I, I think a lot of people gave me a lot of space to be able to develop and grow. And I, it's great as an artist when you come to a, a point of being able to appreciate what people have given you, and that's the comedians and the and the and the singers and the musicians and the, and the other poets as well. But this idea of poetry being something which is um, separate from the masses is not something neither I or John Hegley or Caroline Duffy, for that matter, or Simon Armitage, for that matter, um, believe in. Um, it is by the people and of the people, and yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the great gifts that comedy and music has given to poetry. It's included us in on what is a larger audience and um, a uh, with a wider reach, and that's accessed us to walk in that direction. People like John Hegley, um, uh, I would say John Cooper Clark in particular, um, and and also Simon Armitage, um, our present poet laureate. I found it. I've told story before, but I found it. I was in, uh, went to Leicester Prison a while ago, mm. and uh, just doing a, doing a chat in the, in their library there. And again, about that poetry. That poetry is for everyone. That don't don't fear. You know that idea of shaping your words in a different way that is not prose. In finding, you know, of, of getting to and. Uh, and just before I left, there was suddenly a lockdown. It wasn't a major event. It wasn't like I was, you know, trapped in some Hollywood prison siege scenario. It was just everyone had to go back to the house. And, and one of the guys there uh, said, oh, please, please, can I read in my poem before before we all have to go? And he read me this poem. And you know what? It, it wasn't. A, it, it's like one of those things where you go, OK, that's not, you know, it's not Yeats. Yeah. But it's also not a bad poem at all. And yeah. what he had found and whether he will then be able to express that again when he leaves 
when he's yeah. then placed back very often just thrown into the previous situation he was with no but that moment was for me was an incredible thing to see that he just he really he'd managed to shape his words into something oh. and he wanted to express it to a stranger so and it and it was an incredible for me it it, it just a remarkable thing to watch I wonder whether, I wonder whether, you know, because uh, I mean, I know that I can't work in prisons, by the way. I just I just stopped some years ago. I used to do I did a lot of prisons. But the, the idea that somebody looks out into the stars, into the cosmos, uh, somebody who hasn't looked out at them a lot will look in wonder and they will probably point to things that are that you will see that you will know. And, and you, Katie, you know, you, you'd be like, yep, 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 yep. Now he's going to tell me about that star. Yep, yep. Oh, and he saw a shooting star. Isn't that lovely? A shooting star. That's, that's what he's got. But he's got it. He's got, you know, he, she, they, they've got something. They've seen, they've seen something bigger than themselves. They've, you know, they've, and you can see that in them, even though they're going for the shooting star, the blah, 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 and the blah, blah, blah. It's similar when a person is, is locked down. People often talk about uh, write poetry when they uh, have when they're exposed to their own personal cosmos. You know, so it may not be the great piece of literature, but it is something. It is an opening, and I'll bet there's a metaphor in there, even if the person hasn't realised it themselves. You know, um, I bet there is magic in them hills, and I think a, jo a job as a writer, if you do teach uh, to a degree is to push the person who's written the poem because they're gagging for it. That person who sees the stars is gagging for more information for them to be able to grab hold of so they can understand it some more to the point that they understand it to the point that the, the world they know is going to end and they're in tears themselves, you know. So there's that, that opening that that person gave you is, is a real gift, a kind of looking at this... Um, yeah, your own personal um, cosmos. And, and um, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. What I don't understand is why we think we have to understand everything. You know, the action of, I just listened to you talking with Katie and thinking, and I, and I can grasp some of this, and I'm really enjoying it because it's bending my brain. I, I am finding out, I'm like, God, I want to know that. I wrote down Bolt, Bolt, Boltzmann's brain. Oh, it's so great. You know, Boltzmann's brain problem. I'm, I'm, I'm presently been commissioned to write a poem for the National Brain Appeal. I'm doing all this research. I've got a book there called Brain by David Eagleman. I'm trying to really get in there. But then when you get a, like, this is what it is to be open, like creatively for anybody. But when you get an idea like the Boltzmann brain problem, which isn't about the brain, you know, you investigate that. And it could well link into the poem about, you know, about the brain uh, that I'm writing about, uh, in fact, about brain injury in particular. But um, sorry, I just went off on a, a thing there. But yes, why do we have to understand everything? Poetry is not meant to, it's okay not to understand poetry. It's okay not to understand jazz. As soon as you stop yourself being frightened of understanding something, you can then start to look at it with wonder mm -hmm. and investigate and walk in. You know, there are people who don't go to the theatre because they don't know how to dress. With theatres, and yeah, it's an incredible. They in, you know, because, you know, and what a world awaits for them if they dress any way they want to, you know. I think you're, I mean, that bit of ending is 
don't worry you know if you're going to look at the night sky don't worry that you don't know the names of all the constellations because you won't lose the fact you don't know that's the plow will not remove the wonder of watching the starlight and i think i was going to ask you katie at this particular time at the moment where one of the things that i'm particularly enjoying you know because i've got such a, a, a small area like all of us that we kind of pad around in during the day is every night i look at look through the skylight and i see oh. that's that that square of sky and i'm kind of the two things are there's i've got a very small garden but there's a daffodil that is slowly falling and falling and it's where i exercise every day and i look at it and i go how who will go first the daffodil or i as i attempt this plank (laughs) and the other bit is looking at this square of sky and i wondered if you find at this moment as well uh in terms of the the, uh, lockdown scenario that certain things certain things we go i'm just going to focus on that this moment because i don't have everything to choose from so i'm just going to choose this bit yeah i mean i yeah i mean i definitely think that uh sort of thinking about the wider universe and 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 specifically thinking about the fact that we are deeply unimportant to it uh is helpful to me in moments like this where where you know things are very hard and there's a lot of suffering and there's a there's a sort of crisis and everybody's kind of in crisis right now but there is still this beauty beauty and wonder out there and and you can still access that you know you can still see the sunset and the night sky and the moon and and you can still put yourself in this other kind of space where there is something out there that will persist beyond us that doesn't care what we're doing we cannot mess it up um and and we have access to to that the sense of wonder in approaching that and and i find that really very comforting sometimes you found during this particular period uh, has there been anything that you've been able to have a certain focus on to to kind of deal with the scenario it's uh, driving me batshit crazy to be honest <laughs> no i'm joking i'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> well actually no i feel like i'm on a seesaw between batshit crazy and hey this is beautiful um uh, I've got to read books for the Booker Prize at the moment. You can see I, I, I pile those books behind me very deliberately. Uh, and I am just, I wake up first thing in the morning, I wash, I should meditate a little bit, I don't. Uh, I make tea, I, I, and I, then I, I get my head into a book and I run myself through it and, and um, yeah, deal with my inadequacies because there's so much beautiful writing out there. Robin, this would be, you, you could do this. Um, oh, I fear yeah, it. I, yeah. I would fear. Natalie Haynes has done that, and Natalie, yeah, look at the number of books. Uh, well, you know what worries me about something like that is what I look. What if I lose the joy of reading because I'm forced to read so much? Oh no, you do lose the joy of reading. There is not. There is no <laughs> doubt about that. About that. Um, no doubt about that. Um, I, it's it's virtually a book a day, and um, but it's a PhD. It's uh, it's it's beautiful to see so much uh, incredible work, and I I'm I'm no better than the next man. I'm just uh, yeah, I'm just trolling through that day after day, and I'm behind, man. I'm behind. I mean, we've got a lockdown, and I am behind. Right. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? I think the many one... of us discovered is uh, imagination for procrastination is incredibly powerful. You may limit the ways that we can distract ourselves from the task in hand, but as the room gets smaller, we still find a new way of man- and maybe I just need to deal with that square there for a while. I need to manage my 
online online this is my square you know thousands of pixels of online choices you know facebook twitter uh, instagram you know just just a it's just a, i need to manage that and in fact this is a great just for me i'm not talking for on behalf of anybody else but this is a great time to manage our relationship my relationship with the online world um, I think it's a really good time for me to go. Wait a minute, Len. This isn't. This shouldn't be. Every five minutes you look at your phone. That's 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 not a way to live. And you need to get. You need to manage that. And I'm finding that that is something that I I, I need to uh, I need to do. In fact, this situation for me. Not I'm, I'm not saying for anybody else. But it's a really it's a really interesting. It's a really it's a it's a it's impossible not to see your own failings, your own thought processes for me. And I think this has got to be a good thing. Like, um, it's got to be a good thing because it, it gives me the ability to be able to maybe take a good look at myself, you know, and go, oh, okay, let me need to, your thoughts are, got, are doing a thing that they normally do, but you're always so busy that you can sort of like, you know, cast them off as being, and, um, and, uh, and it's, so it's an opportunity, actually, to, to become a better version of myself, I think. That sounds quite selfish, but we are in lockdown, so, you know, there Why isn't not? a lot of introspection, so, et cetera. So. Let solipsism thrive. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Lem. Thank you very much, Katie. Thank you, Laura. Uh, this Robin, is, uh, you are ace. Okay. Oh man, it's so much fun, you, man. You, the way you do, the way you do it, and 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 the the way you do it, and what you do is just uh, an inspiration. And uh, I'm 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 I mean that. So it's really nice. Yeah, I, I, just, I I love just talking to get, going into all your minds. It's, <laughs> it's fantastic. And uh, my name is Why is a great way of going. To, Katie's book I, I've mentioned. I won't show you because it's not the right cover. The end of everything. Find out about that I'm and find out you. more about Laura's work because Laura's work is is fantastic as well. So thank you very much, everyone. We're back tomorrow morning. Josie will be with us as well uh, with Ed Byrne and uh, the Lost Voice guy. And uh, and then as I said over the weekend, Josie's going to be doing some live shows and there's going to be various other things going on as well and also by the way i've just rem remembered uh tomorrow we also have Susie gage on who is brilliant and who uh, uh her book say why to drugs uh, which is based on her podcast series is really useful as well if you can leave a tip at the bottom we're going to make sure that's distributed to as many artists as possible and uh, as i also said as many art centers and kind of various different hubs and places that we want to keep going for when this is all over and done with thank you very much for for listening watching whatever you may have done and uh maybe see you tomorrow morning thank you Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and rate and review and all that sort of stuff. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support us and the podcast and everything we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network. Hope you're having a great week. Hope you're holding up. Uh, and this will all be over someday. We'll be back uh, with a new episode next week. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.